This is 100 Days of Dante, a podcast journey through Dante's divine comedy, one canto at a time. Join us online at 100daysofdante.com. Let's read together. Peace to you and all good. I'm Father Francisco Nahoy of the Order of Friars Minor Conventual. We were founded in the year 1209 by St. Francis of Assisi, the central figure of Paradiso XI. Of all the medieval characters whom Dante treats at length in the Divine Comedy, we'd be hard-pressed to find someone of greater contemporary impact and relevance than St. Francis. This magnificently Dantesque city stands as a testament to his influence in world culture. It's named for him as are hundreds of other locations throughout the world. Indeed, the Poverello of Assisi has had an astonishing afterlife in world culture, in Christian spirituality, and the social dimensions of compassion for the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. Even the vernacular eloquence of which Dante himself was so great a proponent finds an early attestation in the Laude of St. Francis, Altissimo. Onnipotente bon signore, tu sole laude la gloria e l'onore e onne benedizione. A te solo altissimo segonfano, e nullu omo e ne digno temento vare. Laudato sie mi signore cum tutte le tue creature. Today's canto, Paradiso 11, begins with an apostrophe to the joys of the heavenly journey in contrast to earthly cares. St. Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican philosopher and theologian, appears and apprehends the pilgrim's thoughts. Dante, of course, hopes for clarity from the angelic doctor, who, in fact, begins immediately to make his characteristic distinctions in order to narrate the life of St. Francis. Thomas here unfolds the biography of Francis in a series of rhetorical figures. First, Francis is the rising sun, then he marries Lady Poverty, which in turn attracts others to follow him in what will become the Franciscan movement, soon to receive official approbation from the Pope. Eventually, Francis goes on a quest for martyrdom, but God preserves him for another end, the sacred stigmata, only revealed at his death. These wounds of Christ, nailed to the cross, were imprinted in his body and brought him into even greater conformity with the crucified Lord. Francis, as Thomas tells Dante, was born in Assisi, between the Topino and Chiascio, both tributaries of the great Tiber. Identifying his subject by the rivers associated with their native places, Thomas squarely fits into the tradition of the epic poets of Greece and Rome, and this suggests a, a stronger bond between theology and poetics than we may normally recognize. Francis' father was Pietro Bernardone, a successful cloth merchant in the region. As a young man, Francesco experienced a profound conversion experience in the aftermath of a disastrous conflict between his native Assisi and nearby Perugia. Francis was held prisoner for nearly a year. Reevaluating his frivolous and worldly life up to that point, in contrast to the simplicity of the gospel message, 
placed Francis on a collision course with the wishes of his father, who wanted him to continue his own lucrative trade. In the account given us by Friar Thomas of Celano, Francis fled his family home into the Piazza Comune of Assisi, where Pietro, hot in pursuit, confronted his son publicly. He pointed out, quite rightly, that Francis owed all his material possessions, even the clothes on his back, to his father's wealth. Acknowledging his father's claim, Francis, in the midst of the gathering crowd, stripped his clothes and, naked, gave them back to his father. Our contemporary sensibilities read this scene as the actions of a bratty smart aleck with poor boundaries. But his contemporaries, and the poet Dante himself, saw in it a genuine act of respectful self-abnegation before a father making demands that the son could not in conscience accept. Witnessing this scene, the bishop of Assisi took off his own mantle and clothed Francis with it. Later, while St. Francis prays before the cross of San Damiano, Christ himself speaks to him and tells him, Rebuild my church. Francis' path thereafter is a rebuilding of the mystical body of Christ, first and foremost in his own life of discipleship and Christian witness. In this canto, St. Thomas Aquinas alludes to the pious legend of Pope Innocent's dream. He saw the Lateran Basilica of St. John, the head and mother of all churches in the Latin West, trembling and falling into ruin. Suddenly, two figures, one in a dark gray habit and the other in black and white, rushed from either side to support the collapsing structure. As Thomas puts it to Dante, divine providence ordained two princes, Seraphic Francis and Cherubic Dominic, to initiate the spiritual and practical reforms that would rescue the church. Because they both appear on the scene at the moment, St. Thomas tells Dante that we speak of both when praising one. Indeed, the Roman liturgy names them together in the Litany of Saints. Friars' preachers call Francis Father, even as we, Friars Minor, invoke Father Dominic. At this stage, as Thomas tells Dante, the earliest followers of Francis begin to appear on the scene. St. Bonaventure wrote, The reason that made me love the order of blessed Francis is that from its very inception it resembled the life of the Church. First, simple men. Later, learned doctors. This canto in the Paradiso and the next reveal a chiastic structure. In 11, a Dominican doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, lauds St. Francis but censures contemporary Dominicans. In 12, a Franciscan doctor, our Bonaventure, praises Dominic while condemning Franciscans of that day. We're going now across the bay to visit Father Augustine Thompson of the Order of Preachers. Father Augustine is a Dominican scholar, the author of a very well-received contemporary biography of St. Francis, and soon to be the new president of the Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies in Toronto. 
Father, you've pointed out that the allegorical wedding of St. Francis to Lady Poverty begins to appear in the literature only after his death in 1226. That is correct. Uh, in the old days, it used to be thought that the first document that included this trope was the Sacrum Commercium, and it was dated to about a year or two after his death. Modern scholarship has now recognized that that date is wrong, and it actually doesn't, uh, it doesn't appear until the 1250s. And what interest do you think uh, the Middle Ages after Francis would have had in that particular kind of marriage? Uh, well, this kind of mystical marriage is a common trope in uh, courtly love literature. And so I, Dante came out of that environment himself. He wrote for poets who were involved with that. So for Dante, literarily, it's a natural choice. We can think of him and Beatrice, for example. The Dolce Stilnovo. Exactly. Uh, the, as for the Franciscans, uh, and this is, I'm just going to take a guess here, uh, by the 1240s to 50s, the Franciscan order is attracting far more aristocratic men who come from a background where they would have been acquainted with or even read uh, chivalric or courtly love literature. The romantic trope of Francis on this model would be one that they would understand and find very appealing, romantic as it is. Francis dedicated himself to a life of prayer and solitude. One day, in a singular moment of ongoing personal conversion, Francis encountered a leper. In his age, lepers were often forced to ring a bell wherever they went and to cry out the warning, unclean. Social customs had embedded in Francis an incomparable loathing for persons afflicted with what today we call Hansen's disease. He reacted to lepers with repugnance and anxiety. Like so many of his contemporaries, his personal revulsion furthered the humiliation of these persons and added to their suffering. Nonetheless, in a decisive moment of illumination, Francis suddenly perceived in this leper the embodiment of God's beauty, a human being to be loved and cared for tenderly. Choosing to embrace the leper instead of avoiding him, Francis began to regard all people with a compassion modeled upon the Lord's self-giving at Calvary. Later, as a community of brothers, the friars nursed and bathed the lepers, beginning the Franciscan tradition of special attention to the poor and outcast, aflame with desire to preach the gospel and win the prize of holy martyrdom St. Francis decided to preach in the Muslim world. Thus, in the midst of the Fifth Crusade, Francis dramatically crossed the battle lines at Damietta in order to speak with Malik al-Kamil, the Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt. Intrigued by the courage and simplicity of this bold but unassuming man, the Sultan recognized in Francis a Christian unlike any other. In their meeting, the hagiographers report that Malik al-Kamil was moved by his words and listened to Francis very willingly. With admiration for his visitor, the sultan spared Francis and sent him back to Italy. 
Playing on the sound of the word Assisi, St. Thomas refers to Francis' place of birth as Ascesi, which means I have risen. In other words, Dante has Aquinas identify Francis with the messianic figure who will reconsecrate the temple. In the prophet Zechariah, it is written, Ecce vir oriens nomen eus, Behold the man, East is his name. Both scripture and ancient Christian hymnody identify the East as the direction from which the resurrected Jesus and the eschatological Christ approach. Thus, Dante presents Francis of Assisi as the risen Lord's most convincing disciple of the latter days. And what, after all, does discipleship mean, if not imitatio Christi? For Francis, the imitation of Christ was a lifelong process of purification through fasting and penance, almsgiving and contemplative prayer. The trope of lady poverty signals, above all, his explicitly canotic spirituality. For in Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself and took the form of a slave being born in the likeness of men. During the Lent of 1224, two years before his death, his mind and heart turned frequently to meditate upon the suffering of Christ and his obedience to the Father. Retreating with Friar Leo into the wilderness, Francis agonized over the great pain that Jesus experienced and thanked our Lord for the supreme sacrifice that he had endured. On the 14th of September in that year, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, in the solitude of prayer on Mount Alverna, Francis beheld the crucified Christ born aloft by six wings. In this moment of seraphic ecstasy, he who had sought to imitate Christ in all things received the marks of his Lord's crucifixion, stigmata on his hands, his feet, and his side. And so, when the world was growing cold, Christ renewed the marks of his passion in the flesh of St. Francis to rekindle our love for God. By bearing the marks of the crucifixion in his body, Francis experienced an even deeper union with the Lord Jesus. Thus, the word of God whom Francis had cherished, both as the child of Bethlehem and as the victim at Calvary, brought the saint at last into perfect conformity with himself. Thank you for reading Dante's Divine Comedy with us. Continue the journey at 100daysofdante.com. 100 Days of Dante is brought to you by the Baylor University Honors College with support from the Torrey Honors College at Biola University, the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, the University of Dallas, Whitworth University, and Gonzaga University in Florence.